0: We're going to talk today about what am I pursuing. We're in a series where we're looking at having a Jesus mindset. You know, we can have all sorts of other mindsets, can't we? A panic mindset, a control mindset. Who would like a Jesus mindset for 2024? Can I get a... Yeah, sign me up. Okay. So to do that, we're going to tell a silly story about a a guy named Carl. Now, Carl is... Not just anybody. Carl's actually the camel king of Jerusalem. And if you look here, here he is. He's a handsome guy, very proud of his extensive camel collection. In fact, you know he lived about two thousand years ago. But if you would have gone to Carl 's camel dealership, you could not have gotten a better price anywhere. He'd beat it, and he 'd make sure that you walked away with the camel of your dreams. Now. You couldn't eat it because you had to follow Levitical law and camels were unclean to eat. But why would you want to eat a camel? You rode the camel and you'd look like a prince. You wouldn't quite look like Carl the camel king, but that's okay because only he was perfect in his mind. And so the thing about Carl, now Carl's fictional, but Carl grew up 2,000 years ago. And the challenge that Carl had is he grew up very poor. And he didn't feel great about it. You know, he grew up in a Jewish family, and they were reverent. They followed all the Levitical customs, and they went to synagogue, and they gave what little they had. But Carl always really resented the fact that he was poor, and that when it came time for the Feast of Booths, you know, they had the smallest tent of all their friends. And His tent didn't have the lovely purple and the red. It was plain, and he felt very self-conscious, so he worked hard, and he learned the Torah. You know, he did flunk out at one point and not be able to continue in rabbis, but most people couldn't, and so Carl said, that's it, I'm going to work hard, and he became an apprentice camel salesman, and he, he was really good at it. Now, he didn't overly like camels or selling people, selling things to people, or people. But he was good at selling the camels, and he rose, and he amassed a fortune. And pretty soon, he was not just Carl, he was Carl, the camel king of Jerusalem. But he had pretty deep wounds in his life. And he looked at his past, and he was resentful. He followed his religion. He followed all the things he was supposed to do, but he never quite felt like he measured up. Now, why do I tell this story? I like to sometimes fill in the gaps in Scripture. This is a kind of a paraphrase, a silly story about something that actually did happen, about a rich young man approaches Jesus in the 19th chapter of Matthew. And so today we're going to be looking in Matthew 19. If you brought your Bible, you're welcome to open up there. We're going to look at some different parts of this. But as we consider Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, we don't know all the details. So imagine that Carl the Camel King, imagine that as kind of his background. And we'll look at what happened, because in this story, we'll paraphrase it today. So what happens is this guy, and we'll call him Carl, he approaches Jesus. And he has a question for Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? It's a question we all ask, isn't it? Hey, what, what do I do to be saved? How do I have eternal life? So he says, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? Jesus asked him, hey, do you follow all of the commandments? And he says, yes, I'm, I'm religious. I'm, I'm a good Jewish person. I follow all the laws. I keep them. And Jesus says, wonderful. And he said, okay, but what else do I need to do? Jesus says, hey, if you want to be perfect... You're really wealthy. You need to give up everything and then come follow me. But Carl, the, the camel king, as we call him, he says, oh, Jesus, I can't do that. And he walks away sad. And now this is a, a really interesting story because in our lives, just like with our friend who approaches Jesus, many Christians have a messed up relationship with money, don't we? Finances. Sometimes they say, hey, we shouldn't talk about that in church, right? You know, that's a a third rail. We don't want to talk about that because Christians in the church, we can have all these ideas, but very quickly, instead of pursuing spiritual wealth, what happens? We start having all these conflicted ideas and feelings, and we, we start pursuing the wrong thing. But if we're going to have a Jesus mindset, what our Jesus mindset for today is, hey, Spiritual wealth is wealth, right? The wealth we want to pursue in our lives, what we want to see, our Jesus mindset is pretty clear. True wealth is spiritual wealth. True wealth is spiritual. It's not financial. It's not monetary. It's not material. It's spiritual wealth. Now, what do we mean by we say that? Find value in the things of God rather than the things of this world. Now that's that's what our, our friend who approaches Jesus has a difficult time with, is that he is finding value in his wealth, not finding value in his relationship with God. It's not like he's having wealth that is an outflowing of, of living the right way and caring about people, but he's now made it a thing in his life that's gotten in the way. But true wealth is spiritual. It's not financial, it's not material. Now, in the Bible, you have these wonderful stories, and if you open up Scripture, you can, you can actually go all the way through, and you'll see that one of the big themes of the Bible, look at your Bible for a moment. Sometimes we wonder, hey, you know, it's a big book. It's like, how many pages? It can often be close to 2,000 pages. Hmm, what's in there? Well, one of the big things that is a big primary theme is that you can pursue God, or you can pursue everything else. You can pursue God's best for your life, or you can pursue everything else that's not God's best. You can live the right way, or you can live your own way. And so there's these wonderful stories of people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are some people who get it. When we think of the Bible, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is that most of the people in the story mess up pretty badly, don't they? Think about, guys, there's there's actual murderers in there. There's all sorts of nonsense and craziness that happens. And we're like, oh, I'm not so bad. If God can use them, God can use me too. There are a few people who do nearly get it right. And there are a few people who show us examples of what it means to pursue the things of God rather than the things of this world. Let's think of a couple. So, If you look in the book of Acts, there's this wonderful woman named Lydia, Acts 16. And Lydia is a seller of purple cloth, which, if you know anything about that, it's made from this really specific snail. Um, So this snail makes the pigment, and so she's wealthy, but then she gives her life to Jesus, and she has an opportunity to follow him. And what she does is she actually plants a church, And you see that she's part of understanding that, hey, I can be part of the solution, that I can take my wealth and I can let it be the basis that we can plant a church. Then another example that we see is we look at this guy, Daniel. You know Daniel the lion's den? We love Daniel. Why do we love Daniel? Because he's this young, brilliant guy who should go to Harvard. And then this king conquers his people, and takes him off forcibly, and instead of now being miserable and upset, he says, well, you know, my faith travels, spiritual wealth travels, therefore I can serve God in any place. He's flexible without compromising, and we have these wonderful stories. In fact, we're calling this year, if you think to a couple of weeks ago, we're thinking of this year as our Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego year, that we're just going to say this is the year we're going to follow God and not compromise and not worry about it. Then there's this guy Barnabas. Go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Barnabas, you know, his actual name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas because he's such a wonderful encourager. And he's just the guy that you want to have around. You just want to have him with you. And what he does is he's got some land and he turns it over and says, hey, let's build cool things together, let's do cool stuff for Jesus. And what we see very quickly is that there are examples of people in Scripture who show us that true wealth is spiritual wealth. But if you think to our friend Carl, the camel king, he walks away sad. And sometimes we come to church and we walk away sad. Have you ever come to church and been like, I'm so excited for an amazing spiritual awakening? And then you're like, the pastor was kind of boring, he talked too long, The service, like, it wasn't air-conditioned or it was too cold, and it was kind of frustrating, and I walked away sad. Because sometimes we come to church with expectations, and maybe we need to set aside those expectations, but what we have to say is, hey, what am I pursuing? Because in all parts of my life, in my marriage, as a parent, as a retired person, as a person starting out thinking, hey, someday I'm going to be old enough to have a job, we all are going to have the opportunity to decide what we're going to pursue. Are we going to pursue God and let that be the basis for everything, or are we going to pursue everything else? Now, Carl gets it wrong. We don't have to. And so we ask this question, you know, am I asking the right question in my life? So we're going to be in in the 19th chapter of, of Matthew. So you've got this guy, the rich young man, he's talking to Jesus. And he comes up, and here's what he says. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's the wrong question. And you could say, what? That seems like a good question. What good deed must I do? Well, the problem that you're immediately seeing here, me doing. Notice what he says. Teacher, so he's talking to Jesus. Imagine you had an opportunity to have a conversation face-to-face with Jesus. And he said this, teacher, what good deed must I do? The problem is it now becomes all about me doing. What happens when life becomes about me doing? Is that a helpful place to go when it's all about me and doing and more and guilt and frustration and disappointment and shame? Now, me doing kind of follows this pattern. I'm trying to measure up. I'm trying to. But I'm trying and I'm failing. Then I keep trying to mess up. And I'm still trying, I'm still failing. It's kind of like running an endless race. Have you ever run a race? Imagine you're running a race and you're not ever allowed to stop. That's what me doing is. If I say, hey, hey Jesus, what do I need to do when it's all about me and it's all about me doing? It's a race that's never going to end. Or digging a... Bottomless pit. Do you remember being a little kid and we had that saying, Hey, I'm going to dig a hole to China? Or you have a dog and your dog just starts digging. What's the problem? If you don't stop your dog, will your dog ever stop digging? No, the dog will just keep digging. Or running on a treadmill. The problem with a treadmill is there's no end point. So we just keep running and we keep doing it. When we think of me doing, if I ask Jesus, I, I think of, okay, I need to pursue something in my life so Jesus. What do I need to do? I'm trying to measure up, failing to measure up, still trying, I'm still failing. When I was a little kid, I grew up in Rhode Island. I'm curious, did anyone else here grow up in the state of Rhode Island? You may know about a guy named Mr. Feinstein. I think his first name was Barry. Now, we didn't have Norman Rockefeller in Rhode Island, but we had Barry Feinstein. And uh, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page because he's not actually famous. But in our elementary school, he was our own philanthropist. And he came in and he had something called the Feinstein Good Deeds Club. So it sounded really nice. I imagine that he and the teachers and everybody, they were trying to instill in the young people there a sense of doing the right thing and good deeds and helping others, which sounds really nice. But little David wanted to win. So what they told us is they said, hey, we're going to do something called the Feinstein Good Deeds Club. So they handed me a book, and they handed all my classmates a book, and they said, you need to fill up this book. And I thought, aha, this is my chance to show that I can do the most good deeds in the class. So I did. I filled up the book. And I proudly, after about two weeks, walked up to my teacher, and I said, here you go, I filled up the book. And she said, oh, okay. And she handed me a book blank book and said, well, just keep going. I, I said, wait, didn't I, didn't I win something? Like I was expecting, I just watched Willy Wonka recently. I was expecting to win a chocolate factory or something. But instead I was just handed a blank book and now expected to keep going. So I did. I, I filled up a second book and I took it back to my teacher and I said, here you go. And she was about to give me a third blank book. The problem is too often that is how we approach faith. We approach faith from, I just need to do more, and we find it's, it's an endless race, it's a treadmill, it's digging a bottomless pit. Faith, we should ask this question when we're looking at things, we should say, is my faith genuine? You know, I'm agreeing to certain things I trust in Jesus. I accept there's more I don't know. And so as I look in my life, I say, "Wow, it's not that should I be doing more? But I understand that as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus, is my faith genuine? So my question for you is as we're looking at what we pursue, as we're looking and saying, you know, am I pursuing the things of God or am I pursuing everything else? What about you? Are you living with this idea of what more must I do? Think about that for a moment. In your your marriage, are are you looking at it and maybe... Now, nobody's got a perfect marriage, so we're looking at our marriage and we're like, the two become one and, and Jesus is in the center, but, but things aren't perfect and I'm confused why they're not perfect. Are you approaching it with, what more must I do? Because I'll tell you, someone who's been married for 11 years, is that when we simply approach it from that, what happens? We get ourselves in trouble. But if we look at it and say, hey, is my faith genuine? You know, okay, okay. Things aren't perfect, but I'm not expecting to be perfect, but if I'm pursuing God, and hopefully my spouse is pursuing God too, I can really realize that it's not that I need to do more, it's not that I need to measure up, it's that I need to do a self-evaluation and ask, is my faith genuine, or do I need to be open to the Lord's leading? And that's kind of our next question, is okay, am I pursuing control, or am I pursuing humility? Because this is one of the issues that the rich young man, Carl, has. Is that, if we're being honest, he's doing a lot of this. So I want you to hold your hands open for a second. Close your fist for a second. Control versus humility. We'll come back to this, but I want to I plant this idea. So we're going we're gonna to read this first part of the text. I want you to think of this. But just think of this as we're going in here. So we're going to be in verse 20. So now, Jesus and the rich young man are talking, and and the rich young man says this to Jesus, hey, I've obeyed all the commandments. What else must I do? Now, if we're looking at this, you can say, hey, he's still asking the wrong question. He He should be saying, is my faith genuine? Yes, but we're also seeing here that he's trying to control things. He's trying to say, hey, I don't have a full understanding of everything, but I should have a full understanding of everything. My brain is smart enough to handle everything. My brain is smart enough to figure out every part of this. I need to fully understand it. And so therefore, Jesus, you just tell me what else I need to do, and I'm going to do that too, then we're going to be good. So now I want you to think of control and humility. So close your fists. Control says this. Control says very clearly, I can solve this. Think about, I love going to knuckle-headed teenagers. Think about a knuckle-headed teenager you know, okay? And let's say you're pursuing Jesus in your life. I hope you are, I am, and we all try to do it imperfectly. But then we have a knuckle-headed teenager who comes by and they really frustrate us, don't, don't they? And they're making choices and we're sitting and being like, I can't believe you're acting like this. How did we get here? What is going on? Control says... I can solve this. And then we get into the frustrating conversation with the knuckle-headed teenager. Let's go to the election season. Control says, I can solve this. So I have a co-worker with political views that really, really frustrate me. Don't raise your hand, but do we have this person, someone who is totally on a different side of the aisle, and they're wrong, and we're right, okay? Control says, I can solve this. We close the fist. And we lose a friend, we have a workplace dispute, whatever, right? Humility simply says, hey, I will turn this over to God. The knuckle-headed teenager, hey, Lord, that's your knuckle-headed teenager. I have a role in their life, but that is your image-bearer. That's between, I can pray for the knuckle-headed teenager. I can have any role that you want me to have. But ultimately, I don't need to solve the knuckle-headed teenager. I'm responsible to you, Lord, the knuckleheaded teenager is ultimately going to have to be responsible for you, too. I can turn it over to you. In the time of the election season, again, with the coworker who we could go back and forth and have a major falling out with. Ugh, you're so wrong. I'm going to lose a friendship over it. I'm going to have a tense. Or, hey, you know, God, I didn't create polarization in our country. I didn't create this weird dichotomy that we seem to have in my workplace. I'm going to turn this over to you. And Lord, as I'm pursuing you in my life, would you allow me to just humbly be aware that I don't have to have the answers and I don't have to sit and argue with that person. Maybe we just say, you know, we're just going to talk about the Bruins. Maybe we just say, you know, we can't agree on politics. We don't need to agree on politics. We don't need to talk about politics. We're here to work We're here to have a relationship. We're not here to talk about politics. Now, that brings me to something that happened this past week. I was sitting at a coffee shop. Now, I have a favorite coffee shop in the area, and I walked in. It was a Tuesday morning. It was about 9 a.m., and so you know what that is? That's a perfect time to walk into an empty coffee shop. It's amazing. You know, everybody gets their early morning fix, and they get to work, and then the the all-day crowd who are going to work from home, they don't arrive till about 10.30 or 11, and they're going to kind of use that as their office in the coffee shop. So I'm good for about 9 to 10.30. I can just have my piece and hang out and write, write whatever I'm going to write, work on the devotional, send some emails, etc. Except about 10 minutes in, I'm sitting down. I've got my nitro cold brew right there, all excited. It's a large, 24-ounce, sitting there, really excited, And these two people walk in. And now it's an abandoned coffee shop. There's no one there. They sit right down next to me, of course. Okay? I'm like, okay, well, whatever. So now I'm not really an AirPod person, so I don't have AirPods in, but I'm just like, it's going to be fine. They start talking. Now, do you know that person who talks like three or four times the volume they need to? Like Barney always talked about inside voices, outside voices, and then there's yelling Like, they're just yelling. Like, they're not yelling at each other. They're just yelling as they're talking. So again, I'm sitting there drinking my nitro cold brew, trying to think, well, this is kind of uncomfortable, but it would be obnoxious if I just got up and walked to a different part of the coffee shop. So I will sit here and we'll be okay. And they start talking to the point where I know what they're saying. And I don't want to hear it. Have you ever been in this situation? You don't want to hear the conversation. You're not trying to eavesdrop. In fact, you're doing everything short of this, but you're hearing the conversation. So they start basically yelling about how they both lost jobs. They've both driven about a half an hour from different directions to come meet, to complain, and they're so excited about this complaining session. I'm serious. One was from 30 minutes to the left, one was from 30 minutes to the right. Um, And then they talk about how both of them have just, things are getting progressively worse. They're not happy about everything, but they've come to a conclusion. Nothing matters. Everything's relative. They're basically nihilist. They basically just say, hey, nothing matters, whatever, we can make our own truth. Now, this is a story about me, not them, because I now have a decision to do either this or this. Because I am a pastor sitting next to them with an open Bible and a computer and working on a sermon and devotionals and sending congregational emails and all these things. And now I have the choice. Am I going to try to solve this and go over and be like, listen, you're totally wrong. I am a minister and you need to understand that Jesus, right? I could do that whole thing. But what would happen? The two people are just kind of yelling about their life what would they start to do? Who'd they be yelling at? They'd be yelling at me. And now I would just have an uncomfortable experience in my favorite coffee shop and the owner probably wouldn't want me to come back. So this is all playing in my head. So what I decide, it's not that I can solve this. I just need to turn it over to God. So I stop and I don't know either of their names and I just pray for them. And I've prayed for them a few times later in the week and realize that, hey, I need to be pursuing God's best for my life. I need to be pursuing God's best for our congregation. I don't need to be trying to solve it with two people that are yelling about how bad their life is in a coffee shop. We can all in many ways relate to this because here's our question. And it is a really important key question that we have to ask. Are You described your spouse, by your children, by yourself, by your coworker, as someone who is controlling. Because when we are controlling, we are not humble, are we? We're not living in right relationship with ourselves, with God. We're not loving God. We're not loving our neighbor when we're controlling. We're just controlling. Or are we humble? Are we saying, it's God's job to control, it's my job to be open. Now, God may ask me to do certain things God may invite me that there's in relationships time to have difficult conversations. But if I'm just coming in with controlling, I'm making it all about me and I'm not having a Jesus mindset in my life. And so that brings us to kind of how we really conclude our idea is, okay, I want to ask the right question. I want to pursue humility rather than control because ultimately what I want to pursue is I want to pursue spiritual wealth in my life the question is am i pursuing temporary things or spiritual wealth this is always the discussion we we get to have i showed you it's over over in scripture you pursue that which is temporary you pursue that which is eternal what's eternal god his word what's temporary everything else all of the things we're frustrated about i want you to think for a moment. What are you worried about the most right now? Take 10 seconds, and your pastor's giving you permission to have 10 seconds of fret. So go ahead and think about 10 seconds about the couple things you're worried about. I'll do it too. That wasn't fun. Okay. Now, here's the good news. None of those are eternal. None of those are forever. None of those are permanent. Everything you just worried about, if it was family-related you know, that'll pass away. If it was monetary related, maybe it was debt, maybe it was an investment, maybe it was something having to do with a car payment, maybe it was something with rent. Those are all temporary. As we look as Christians in our lives, we can get stuck on those temporary things and we can totally miss what's eternal, can't we? We can get stuck on the health issue in our family. We can get stuck on the temporary thing we're going through. We can get stuck on the seasonal thing we have in our lives. Instead of doing that, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. So the guy has talked to him and walked away sad. And now Peter, Peter's kind of the the head disciple. Peter says, Jesus, can you kind of explain this? Because we're all confused. And Jesus really summarizes it with this statement. He talks about the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of God is about spiritual wealth. It's about that which is eternal. The kingdom of this world is all the things we just worried about. Here's what Jesus said Many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be greatest then. I want to read that together. Many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Think about your thing you're concerned about that we just spent 10 seconds worrying about and fretting about. Read it again. Many who are greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. We can have a fully huge misunderstanding, and sometimes it's about the things we worry about, and oftentimes it does come down to something financial we often have the worry about there's some financial component, and that's what Jesus is talking with this rich young man about. That is often the thing that gets put in our relationship with God. Between there is something with money. Again, many, many Christians, we misunderstand our relationship with the temporary things of this world, and that's often seen in terms of money. Now, we have two misguided pursuits that happen. And it's interesting, in each generation, one becomes more popular. Right now, the thing that gets popular, that, that trickles in on your YouTube channel or, or as people talk about, is, is this idea of health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. Hey, God loves you. He does have a wonderful plan and a purpose for your life, and he wants you to have a million dollars. He wants you to look amazing. He wants you, et cetera, right? And it's not true. And it's popular right now, and it gets YouTube clicks, and etc. But at other times, the thing that becomes really popular, which is just as bad, is the flip side, which is poverty is good. It's called the poverty gospel. It's not super fashionable right now, but truthfully, in the history of the church, it's actually been the more popular one. Poverty is good. You know, you should be, you should give up everything, you should lay down on the side of the road, cover in dirt, and that's what it means to follow Jesus. Neither of those are true. Neither of those are helpful. Because if I'm pursuing health and wealth, I'm pursuing the things of this world. If I'm pursuing poverty, I'm pursuing the things of this world. What we're asked to do is, hey, if we want to have spiritual wealth, that's pursuing the things not of this world, but of God. So I want to give you, there's a pastor and a theologian. His name is B.T. Roberts. And he gives us a different position. We'll reject... Prosperity theology will reject poverty theology. Pursue God, and you will always reap the benefits of whatever you're doing for Him. So let's think about this. Let's say that you want to be a runner, and you're a Christian. You love Jesus. So you start running. There's natural outpourings of being a runner. What are they? You get healthier your doctor's really happy with you because you're physically in a better place because you love Jesus and you run. That's a natural outpouring. Let's say that you seek education and you want to get educated and you want to get a good understanding of schooling. Well, what happens if you're a Christian who now has education, what we quickly see is that you're smarter, you know more things, you can talk to people about difficult topics and you can articulate things. Let's say that you as a Christian want to become a builder. You can now do things that I could never do in my life because you can now put up walls and you can now refinish cabinets and you can now refinish basements and you can do all sorts of things. But you can do all of this for Jesus. You don't have to say, hey, as a Christian, um, that means I'm going to be a bad runner. That means I'm not going to be very educated or I'm going to be a really, really not good builder. No, I can do things pursuing excellence because I'm pursuing God and God is inviting me to live the right way. How I live as whatever I do can be a matter of holiness. Holiness is not following the world but following God. And so what I can say very clearly is that whatever I want to do, I want to do for Jesus. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing temporary things in your life? Are you pursuing things that are going to fade? This is a question we have to ask. You know, am I pursuing everything temporary? Am I sitting and just saying, everything that I'm kind of going after right now, it matters to me now, it's stressing me now, but it's going to fade? Or am I pursuing permanent spiritual wealth? Our Jesus mindset is clear true wealth is spiritual wealth, it's not financial, it's not material. And so here's what we're going to do this week. Here's what I'm going to invite you. I want you to start noticing. So look around in your life. This isn't a week where you need to make a big decision. It's not a week where you need to make a big change. I want you to start noticing, hey, am I asking the right question when I'm in the difficult moment? So am I going through and when I'm, things are tense at work or things are tense at school or things are tense with my spouse? Am I sitting and thinking that i got to do more to prove myself to them, to God, to someone else? Or am I looking at it and saying, okay, I have the opportunity to wonder if my faith is genuine. As we're going through this week, when we think of what we're pursuing, it's really clear that when we're pursuing the wrong thing and we're just open to noticing it, we're going to have a much better sense of what God wants us to do. So we're going to end with this. I want you to close your hands into the fist. If you're finding that your life is like this, I simply invite you, let's live a week where we're noticing every time we're getting controlling. And we're saying, you know what, Lord? When I get controlling, that means that I'm pursuing the temporary things of this world. Maybe it's concerns I have, worries I have, material things. I want to invite you, let's just live for a week and acknowledge the times when we are controlling and say let's be open and let's see the true wealth is spiritual. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I ask that you bless us in this coming week. Lord, would you lead us and we be open to it. Lord, would we acknowledge the fact that we don't have to get it perfect, but what we pursue matters. At the times where we're pursuing everything that's going to fade away, Lord, would you give us clarity Would you give us accountability that Christians in our lives would point it out and help us get on the path? And Lord, would you give us an open spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.